First, I want to thank the Academy and all those who have gone before me and whose shoulders I stand on. No, really, uh, so glad you're here and not at home watching the Oscars, right? <laughs> um, I am so thankful for all those who have answered the question, why Jesus, here at church. Um, I'm awed by your transparency, and I'm honored to call you friends. And um, I just want to know more about you, so let's have coffee. Hi, Spark Church family. I'm Nancy Lowe, uh, and this is my brief but spectacular take on why Jesus. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> um, long ago, my little daughter said, Mom, tell me again where you were born. It was at a prayer meeting, right? No, sweetie. I was born at the Mission Hospital in Asyut, Egypt, but it was during prayer meeting, so the doctor had to be called away to help with my delivery. Um, I'm an MK, a missionary kid, and a TCK, third culture kid. I always squirm when I'm asked what my parents did and uh, that took us overseas. It's not that I'm ashamed or doubtful of their good work, but because I know that society views white missionaries as, well, less than great. <laughs> so I say things like, my dad was an agriculturalist. True. My mom was a PE teacher who taught a lot of English. They worked for the Presbyterian Church. Uh, they were lay missionaries, kind of like the Peace Corps, but church-based. Um, I don't think people get it. They hear missionary, and that's it. <laughs> I'm the fifth of five children. We were close growing up, uh, fueled by much time apart. Boarding school from third grade on was the norm for our community. It tore mom apart to send us away. But education was one of our highest family values, and so it was a necessary sacrifice. We treasured the time we had together, and we still do. It was from my parents that I learned that God loves the world, not just believers or Americans, but all of God's creation. When I was five, we left Egypt, and unexpectedly, due to the Six-Day War, we never returned. This was one of our family's deep heartbreaks. We spent a year furlough in Iowa, mom's home, which felt like a foreign country to me, and were then reassigned to Thailand, which came to be home. Okay, let's settle this right now. Yes, I speak Thai. No, I don't cook Thai. But I do eat Thai. Tan Dai. Um, church, Sunday school, prayer meetings, and mission conference were all part of my life growing up. But something was missing for me. I went through the motions. I wanted to be a good Christian. But God didn't seem real. I was hungry for the living faith that I saw in my Sunday school teacher. I wrestled, I questioned. According to our denominational norms, I was supposed to join the communicants class at age 13, and after that, join the church. But I refused. What if I got to the end of the class and it still didn't have a deep faith? I couldn't just go through the motions then, knowing how significant that step was. I knew I was 
deeply disappointing my parents, but this was between me and God, and it had to be real. In high school, I attended a very different church service with my sister. I heard that faith could be real by putting Jesus first in your life. Maybe I'd heard this before, but to me, this was a revelation. I fervently prayed and asked Jesus to be the center of my life. After that, I looked at life with new eyes. I finally felt peace with God and joy. The Bible came to life. My prayers found tangible answers. What should I do with my life? I heard, be a nurse. Where should I go to college? Please, God, show me a sign. On a road trip through Iowa to visit my cousins, I saw several signs, and so I went to Iowa State, which doesn't have a nursing program. Well, that's a messy story, but I did end up with a nursing degree from Seattle Pacific University. Fast forward, I worked in oncology, ICU, hospice, and surgical nursing. At 35, finally met my husband. Thank you, Jesus. He was a different kind of TCK, an immigrant from Malaysia. I may or may not have been able to eat spicier food than he could. Four years later, finally carrying a pregnancy, I felt the unexpected depth and joy of mother love. Two years after that, I worried that adoptive mother love wouldn't be the same and that wouldn't be fair to my younger daughter, but it most definitely was and is. Jesus, is this how much you love me? I heard, yes, and more. Fast forward, uh, an imperfect marriage, imperfect parenting, imperfect faith, still Jesus. A job loss, death of a sister at 45, Jesus was there, my comforter. Another sister's cancer diagnosis, and then my own. Jesus, please don't let my daughters lose their mom at such a young age. I heard, trust me. Through that time, Jesus showed up with skin on, meals, rides to chemo, gifts, notes, and even dog walks. Then 2016, shock, grief, embarrassment, world shame, friendship strain, Christian disunity. Jesus, help. Somewhere around that time, my husband had had enough of church. He said, I don't want to be associated with those people. Neither did I, but I couldn't walk away, not from Jesus. God, what do I do? I heard, love him. Fast forward, school shootings, glimpsing my own devastating white privilege, suicides at our high school, one by an LGBTQ plus teen finalized my decision to find another church home. But only if Jesus is first. I don't think Jesus wants children to hate themselves because of what they hear at church. I may be wrong about this, but I choose to believe God loves and accepts each and every one of us and made us the way we are. My daughter brought me to Spark where I fell in love with church again, where Jesus is first, where I can be me, my random, spontaneous, people-loving, undisciplined, distractible, compassionate self. My life isn't turning out at all the way I had expected it to. I have more questions now than I ever did. 
I hope God and I are okay as I deconstruct my faith. No matter how far left I lean, no matter how gray all the questions and answers are, I left doctrine, culture, and norms behind, but not Jesus. Never Jesus. In worship, thank you, Junior, and nature, God is so real to me. Even though I doubt or neglect the disciplines of my faith, Jesus is always faithful to me. In sickness and health, joy and loss, Jesus is with me. Jesus is real, faithful, and with us. And that spark is why Jesus. Thank you, Nancy. Um, I love how you capture the totality of God, which is love. Uh, and we forget that, as you uh, described. So uh, thank you for that reminder. Hey, before I start today, uh, uh, there was big news this last... Uh, fr- I'm getting <laughs> touched up about it now. Uh, big news on Friday about Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, just wondering... By raise a hand, have you been affected? Do you know people who've been effective, affected by the collapse of this bank, the 16th largest bank in America? i just like to see if we, if we know people. And as I'm looking out, the answer is yeah. I mean, it's a bank that's here in Palo Alto. And um, maybe I got a little emotional because I went through Lehman, uh, which is a challenge with you if you lose your job by an institution, and, and it's out of your control, and you live in this area, and you can't pay your rent because you don't have a job. You know, it's the worries that happen. So if you've been affected, let us know. <clears throat> if you, those of you raise your hand, you know people, please let them know that um, we have a facility. And so when they're looking for a job, they need a place to come and have an office, uh, we'd love them to come to Spark. We'd like to do what we can uh, not for the people far away, the people literally in our community. Because uh, that's if, if we can't do that, uh, then we're really not a church. Oh. Uh, so, friends, <laughs> uh, good to be with you, that I can say those words and uh, cry about it with you. Um, and a special shout-out to all of you that are online today. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we are in a series called The Fruit of the Spirit. And what we are discovering is that the fruit of the Spirit is just the virtues of Jesus. So that as we abide in the life that we find in Christ, we become sort of the people in the world who reflect God's goodness, His patience, and His love. And today we're going to look at the culminating fruit, the last fruit which is self-control. And when Paul mentions self-control, we're looking at Galatians 5, verse 22. He uses the Greek word enkrateia, enkrateia, which is translated as temperance or as self-control. But the actual word is two words in Greek, and the first word is in. It's a preposition, which means the same thing we say in English. It means in. That's the easy word. 
The second word is kratos, which means strength or power or might or control. So the word inkrateia literally means in power, in strength, and in might. That is self-control. Long before the New Testament was written, there was a school of Greek philosophers. They were called the Stoic philosophers who talked a lot about this word in Kratia. One famous Stoic, his name was Marcus Aurelius. You can see a bust of him on the, on the slide behind me. And he said this about what this word means. He said, wipe out imaginations, check desires, extinguish appetite, keep the ruling faculty in its own power, in its own incratea. And this is the idea of self-control that we are talking about. And it became real popular all throughout Greek culture. Stoicism intended to promote the idea as Marcus Aurelius says here, that human desire was a perverse thing. And so ultimately, a desire needed to be extinguished with incratea, with self-control. And so often today, I think in Christian communities, we live not really with Christian ideas about self-control and desire, but with stoic ones. The famous Psychologist, his name was Sigmund Freud. He talked about desire as a fire that is without a furnace. A fire that is without a focus. That sort of burns at the center of our lives and pushes us. He says in a relentless, unquenchable pursuit of pleasure. So with that desire, to that view, desire is not all that great, is it? It's a bad thing. It's something to get rid of. Another famous psychologist, Carl Jung, he talked about desire as a deep and unalterable energy within us, which imperialistically demands all of our attention. And with that view, zero out of ten would recommend that, right? Like, don't do that. And the writer Doris Lessing, she describes desire as a certain voltage within us, 1,000 volts of love, energy, sex, hatred, art, politics, each of them shaped by desire. But notice that these definitions of desire point to the reality that there's something wrong, something negative or absent in our desires, something that needs to be gotten rid of. And hear this again. This is a stoic idea of desire and not a Christian one. In the Bible, we see that before sin ever enters the human story, desire was not understood as a fire to be extinguished. But it was a good gift to be stewarded through incratea, through self-control. In fact, if you think back to that first family in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they are put in Eden with a capacity to desire and an infinite one at that, to desire God, to desire intimacy with one another, and also to desire the things they shouldn't desire. And this is so vital for us to remember. Even as they reached for the fruit of the tree, they were not supposed to eat. They were exercising within themselves God's desire. It's a gift. And yet, in this moment, it's aimed at the wrong object. It's aimed at idols, maybe of significance, of, of uh, status, of power, of upward mobility and knowledge. See, from a biblical perspective... The problem isn't that we have desire. The Stoics were wrong about that. The problem is training our desires to be oriented toward God and God's desires. 
See, the great theologian, his name was Thomas Aquinas, he said it this way, that our souls are inherently needy. We have apparent desire, and this neediness of the soul points us ultimately to God. Another theologian named Augustine, he says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. A philosopher named Kent Dunnington, he said it similarly. He said, as human creatures, we are limited in every way but one. We have unlimited desire. And that unlimited desire is not something that is actually wrong with us. Just read Genesis. It's actually a part of how God wired you from the beginning. It's what it means to be human. Lately, I've seen this quite often with our two-year-old grandson, Tucker, as he is becoming increasingly capable of sharing his desires. When he finishes something that he really likes, like a cinnamon raisin bagel with cream cheese, he will say, more, more, more. Or maybe when he gets chased by me all over the house, and at this point, my 64-year-old body is exhausted, and I'm literally bent over and breathing heavy, and he will look up at me and say, more, more, more. You see, more is a desire word, and all of us know about it. We want more love. We want more friendships. We want more God. We want more ice cream, and nothing is wrong with those desires. In fact, the Bible teaches us that that our capacity for desire is actually an image of God's infinite capacity to give. You see, God is a great giver. And get this, the only thing we know from Scripture that ever, will ever satisfy the more, more, more that is within each and every one of us is a God we learn about in Scripture who is more than enough. More than enough. And this is where the word self-control comes in as the culminating fruit of the Spirit. It is so vital and so misunderstood You see, self-control is often thought of as a no, just a perpetual no to our desires. But self-control is always about saying no to lesser desires in order to say yes to the greatest desire. And friends, we are currently in a period in the biblical calendar called Lent. It's a period of 40 days during which some Christians remember the events leading up to and including the death and resurrection of Jesus. And for some Christians, they choose to give up something as a spiritually motivated, voluntary sacrifice during Lent, where they just say no to something, just as Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. Maybe it's no golf, Robert. Maybe it's no chocolate, Maybe it's not going out to eat. Maybe it's not binging on Netflix. Maybe it's reducing your hours on social media. And the truth is, most people will have the willpower to last the 40 days because the sacrifice is fairly simple, right? I mean, come on, giving up chocolate, like, wow, really sacrificing for Jesus here. But for more of us than we know, and I may be getting a little bit over my skis here, We have overwhelming temptations and addictions that are very strong and consuming. Think of it as an irresistible urge which leads us to compulsive behavior and a dependency on things like alcohol, substance abuse, video games, shopping, pornography, gambling, 
food, and sex, just to name a few. And try as you like, many people struggle with self-control and fail more often than not. And beside, besides the damage these addictions have on our family and on our job, they also fill you with shame and loneliness and unhappiness. And I recognize that addiction is more than a habit and can be a medical condition and therefore requires treatment, such as an illness or a disease. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that I have all the answers. I know that it is complicated and I am no expert. So I applaud the skilled doctors and nurses and counselors in our community who work to help people with addiction. But I do believe that our faith can play a role too. Jesus was a healer. And the good news for all of us is that self-control is never about self-reliance. In fact, I was struck this week as I was reading Galatians 5 by how many biblical commentaries just pointed to what Paul calls the acts of the flesh. Danielle read them last week. You can go and read these in Galatians 5 if you like, but I'll tell you again what they are. They are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, anger. There's a lot. Selfish, ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And these biblical commentaries, the learned, just essentially say at the end of it, you know, the answers to these problems is just to try harder to not do these things. For them, these biblical commentaries, that's what self-control is. Like, good luck, right? Because if it was just us trying harder, here is what we know. Over and over again from Scripture, we've learned that it will never be sufficient. It will never be. When we meet Paul in the Bible, we learn that he is a Jewish zealot. And he says in his own words that he is from the school of Gamaliel. A zealot who taught according to the strictest of the Old Testament laws. The strictest. In other words, Paul was a student his whole life of the try-harder way of transformation. Just do more things, have more rules. And if the Old Testament teaches anything at all about this, it is that the try-harder transformation never really works, right? And you see this in Paul. In fact, the first time we meet Paul, he's leading others in killing followers of this new movement. That's what it leads to. That's what it looks like. And his transformation, as we read on, it comes not ultimately through the law. The law was insufficient because of the flesh, he will say later on in Romans. But through recognizing how out of control his story had actually become. And how God's grace in that space was the only thing that could ultimately change him. In his letter to the Corinthians, he says, My grace is sufficient for you. That's God speaking to Paul. My grace is sufficient. Tammy and I have learned this time and time again, that just trying harder doesn't cut it at the end of the day. Because we frequently go on a new diet, but there's something about willpower. And there's something about going to a good restaurant and feeling compelled to order something so amazing on the menu, like a mud pie with nuts and whipped cream. And without fail, one of us will say, I think we should start again on Monday. This is just sort of how we think about things. 
If we could just will it, will the transformation, then it would be great, right? Where we would just do it and think, we don't need help. We don't need God for that. And so we start again on Monday and fail again. Paul wrote to the Romans these words. He said, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And all of Paul's words that he writes, and all the letters that he writes to all the churches, that is one of the most remarkable revelations that he offers us. What he is saying is that even though the will is there to do the right thing, the willpower often isn't. Start again on Monday. And this is so vital. At the end of the day, we can be Christians who practice stoicism, I can say no to my iPhone. I can say no to overeating. I can say no to all the sins of the flesh that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. I can say no to having too much to drink or whatever it may be. But if it is just me trying to exercise self-control on my own, eventually, and maybe after a little while, I'm just done. Unless my self-control is flowing from a life source that isn't just me. That's my hope. All through Paul's letters in the New Testament, he will use this great Greek phrase, in Christu, which means in Christ. Paul says, in Christ you are a new creation. In Christ you are children of God. In Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. In Christ you have a new identity. It is vitally important. This is a vitally important word and phrase for Paul. It's all about identity. But where it gets so interesting is that when we get to the culminating fruit in Galatians 5, this word about self-control, about being in power, well, Paul uses a literary device, very common in Hebrew and Greek literature, literature called assonance, where the word for in power and the word for in Christ sounds similar. And the letter of the words are almost identical, which drives home the point that Paul is saying that if you want to be in power, if you want to be in strength, if you want to be in control, you have to be in Christ. You have to surrender to Christ. Lately, I've been reading about the 12-step program as a theory of transformation and change that I think actually works pretty well. The 12 steps, as you may know, were invented in the church and borrowed and now are a part of Alcoholics Anonymous, known as AA. And they're used as a way of cultivating self-control. And here's how. Any addict will tell you that your desires often name for all sorts of idols. You see, idols are desires within us. That's the biblical word for addiction. It's just idolatry, and we all have addictions. We all have idols. It might be money. It might be substance abuse. It might be shopping. We all have something, and you know what your something is. But everyone who is an AA will tell you that the only way to gain self-control is to admit how out of control your life really is. It's counterintuitive. In fact, the first step of the 12 steps is to admit this, that you are powerless over alcohol and that your life has become unmanageable. And then the second step, 
You must come to believe in a power that is greater than yourself that can restore you back to sanity. See, the power in step two is recognizing that it is not just your own power anymore. It's a greater power. And for us in this room, it is the power of God. And then in step three, you must make a decision to turn your life and your will and your desire over to the care of God. These are the first three steps. They're often referred to in shorthand as I can't, God can, I think I will let him try. Most of us know this. Most of us know that we can't on our own. Most of us know that God can. The question for all of us is, Will we let him? Will we let God? I was reading this week about a wealthy and successful businessman named Roland, who 100 years ago had turned into a helpless alcoholic. He was arrested on several occasions, getting into all sorts of trouble with the law, but he always had money and resources to hire a lawyer and to just kind of cover up the problems. Eventually, though, one day he came to the end of his rope, And he knew that if he didn't do something, and in his words, he would end up crazy or dead. Those were his options. And he was so desperate for help that he went on a ship across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe in order to meet with a Swiss psychiatrist, the most famous psychiatrist, uh, Carl Jung. I mentioned him earlier. For one whole year, he received care under Jung, and it was determined that Roland was healed that he was ready, he was going to be able to go home. So he started to head for the ship and to get on the ship that would bring him back to the States. And guess what happened? Before he even got on the ship, before he could even get on the ship, he was completely drunk. He went back to Carl Jung, the great Carl Jung, and Jung told him, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. And in all my years... I've never seen a case as bad as yours that went on to recover. Roland said in a moment he felt like the gates of hell had slammed shut on him. Anyone ever felt like that? He asked Jung desperately, is there no exception? And Jung responded, as it turns out, there was an old Reformed pastor back in the day. And he said, yes, there was one exception. And he said that here and there... Alcoholics find what are called vital spiritual experiences. It happens when they find God or when God finds them. And he said, hope for you will be found there if hope will be found at all. Old Roland, as it turns out, found God, or more likely God found Roland. And he went on to join this community of Jesus followers. He gave his story over to Jesus' story. He gave his desires over to Jesus' desires. He joined a community that was called the Oxford Group, which was eventually joined by a person named Bill W. and then Dr. B. And then it became known as Alcoholics Anonymous. And now Roland's life is a powerful reminder of those words. I can, I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. Jesus is perhaps the best picture of what we have, of what self-control can look like. In the temptation story, the devil approaches Jesus three times. And each time you notice the temptation, it's right at the heart of some of the most common idolatries and addictions in the culture that we live in right now. Jesus is famished. 
He's been at this not eating thing for 40 days before the devil shows up, and the devil knows right where the chink in the armor is, right? The devil says, if you are the son of God, the stone, then tell the stone to become a loaf of bread. And then Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8, and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. In this instance, when the devil talks about bread, he, isn't, he is talking about more than just what you make with a turkey sandwich. It's a metaphor for our material life. In other words, the idol here is to believe this, that you are whatever you have. You are whatever you have. The house you live in, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the stuff you own, whatever is in the storage locker. For many of us, we don't have to go any further, myself included. This is the one. We live in a country who owns more stuff than any other civilization ever in the history of the world. And we are bathed daily in messages and ads and now artificial intelligence and algorithms that are aimed primarily at one thing, controlling your desires. You are what you have, so more, more, more. But for Jesus... The way of self-control here is centered on Deuteronomy 8.6, which says that man does not live by bread alone, but there's more to this verse, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, it's not just, it's not just to know that man does not live by bread alone that enables Jesus to resist, to have self-control in this moment, but it's a yes to listening to every word that comes from the mouth of God for help, and for truth. Here's the truth about you. We are so much more than what we have. You are a glorious agent of God's revolution in history to make God's good character known in the world. You are more flawed than you can imagine. And some of you need to recognize that, myself included. But you are more loved than you could ever imagine too. Right, Nancy? You are capable of cultivating a life that is truly a beautiful life, sourced in self-control and connected to God's goodness, which is eternal and is love, which never runs out. That is who you are. You are more than, than um, what you have. The second temptation for Jesus, it happens as Jesus is led up to what the apostle Luke calls a high place. And he's shown all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil says to him these words. I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will, be, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the temptation here, the, high, the idol here, the addiction here, is to believe, as we often do in our society, that you are what you do. Sounds like Silicon Valley, right? We work so hard. We live at a fantastically fast and frenetic pace. So what does self-control look like here? Well, let me suggest that it may look like slowing down and being unhurried and having some space in your life. It reminds me of that N.T. Wright line that says, in order to catch up to God, you have to slow down. It looks like doing what Jesus is doing in this story, being out in the wilderness for 40 days, giving him time to think and to pray and to seek God. 
I think so often we live at this frenetic pace, and I think about what God is inviting us to. Maybe taking a Sabbath or spending time in silence. Maybe it's a spiritual, a spiritual retreat, and I want you to know that Spark's going to have a spiritual retreat this fall. Maybe it's turning off your iPhone for one day. Did you know your iPhone gets picked up 150 times a day? 150 times, just mindlessly. And if this is really hard to do, maybe if you could just slow down just a bit, you might be able to say, you know what, God, I can't, but you can, and I'm willing to try. Finally, in the last temptation, the devil leads Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, throw yourself down from here. Now, if you just stop here, that's not much of a temptation, is it? That's like, not going to do that. But then the devil goes on and says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, he said, do not put the Lord God to the test. In this temptation, this last idol, this last addiction here is really common in all of us, I think. It's believing that ultimately you are who other people think you are. Acting in ways that implies actions like, let me impress you. Let me dazzle you. Let me gain your approval. Research today on social media, it shows that all of us are increasingly becoming approval addicts. More likes, more tweets, which cause things to happen in our bodies that actually makes us feel good about ourselves when that happens. I was thinking this week, what does it look like to have self-control in this area, in this addiction? And then I thought, and this may not be great for all of us, all of you, but I thought it might look like disappointing some people sometime in your life. Have you ever thought about that? Like you being okay about that, being slower to respond to email, being, uh, not being immediately on your phone to respond to the text messages or whatever it may be. The truth is, Jesus was a master, as it turns out, at disappointing people. Ever think about that when you read the Gospels? He was really good at it. He disappointed the Pharisees and the scribes. He disappointed the money changers. He disappointed Herod. He disappointed his parents. He disappointed his disciples who wanted to overthrow Rome. He disappointed James and John when they were debating about which disciple would sit on his right and who would sit on his left. In the kingdom of God. Jesus, as it turns out, he wasn't living sort of as a pawn for other people's desires for him, for his identity and his purpose. Instead, he was living utterly committed to God's identity and God's purpose for his life. Jesus' greatest act of self-control that he ever shows, though, isn't in the temptation story. In fact, his greatest act of self-control is the one that will get him killed. As the temptation scene comes to an end, our scripture says that the devil withdrew from Jesus until an opportune time. An opportune time. We're all supposed to think, I wonder what when that opportune time was. And as you read on, you understand that the opportune time is in the events that happen leading up to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will face the reality of pain that comes from abandonment, 
of those he loves and of his father. And all the sin and all the brokenness of lived history rush in on this single solitary life. And it's painful and it does the worst to him. But it's even more painful, I think, because for the first time, maybe in all of the Gospels, we see that maybe, just maybe, Jesus' desire and his Father's desire seem not to be one and the same. If you remember, Jesus is in the garden. And Jesus expresses the struggle that he is facing by praying, If you are willing, take this cup from me. We're all supposed to wonder and to wait, what's going to happen next? Eternity in this moment is waiting on the edge of its seat. And Jesus finishes the prayer, and you know how he finishes it. Yet not, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is perhaps the greatest act of self-control ever recorded. As Jesus surrenders his desire and his will to God's desire and God's will, and he trusts in the other side of that cross. On the other side of whatever that next day, that Friday will bring, where there will be hope, there will be life, not death, there will be joy, not sorrow, there will be good measure, not lack. Friends, I imagine some of you here today are struggling with self-control, struggling with an addiction that is out of control, just remember, you can't, God can. And you may be thinking, I just can't stop. I've tried and I try, I want to, but I can't. And the question for you is, will you give God a try? Will you let him help you? We're going to go to a time of communion now. And as we go into it, I hope as you reflect on this sermon that you, don't, you come out of it and just say, we're all just addicted people. Well, we are all addicted people. But I, what I hope you hear next is that God knows we're addicted people, and he loves us, and he will do anything for us, including dying on a cross, which is why we have communion to remember. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take Eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, we've got an amazing father. God loves you. He sent his son for you. The table is open to you as you come up. Just think about what he's done. And try to give space in your life so you can appreciate this more and let God help you become a person, a purpose, and happiness.